Christ Forming the Church is Dr. Joel Hunter's series, and he continues with his fifth message, And They Continued. From the New American Standard, Dr. Hunter's text is taken from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, and it reads as follows, And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions, and were sharing them with all, as any one might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord was adding their number day by day, those who were being saved. And now, let's join Dr. Joel Hunter for his fifth message, entitled, And They Continued, as he continues his series, Christ Forming the Church. Why would we concentrate on the church? I mean, isn't it true that we're supposed to come here and just focus on God, and uh, and learn more about Jesus Christ, and and get filled up with His Spirit so that we can become better Christians. What does the church have to do with all this? Let me ask you even something more personal. Are you convinced that you have the right idea, both intellectually and in your heart, about your connection to the church, about why there is a church, and about your fellowship within the church? We had uh, we had some folks... Uh, go around with video cameras this week and, and uh, um, pick out a few folks that they knew were involved in community. We're talking about what it means to be a community, not just to be an institutional church. And so we thought in order to start this, uh, what is going to be a, a, a teaching for your head off right with the right balance, the right counterbalance, that we just give you a window into the lives of some folks who have connected heart to heart here. Um, so that we can get a glimpse of that community and then explain to you how this fits in to the entire plan of God. Roll that film, will you? I think it's really important that people are involved in group settings where you can share problems and the stuff of ordinary life. No one can make it through this life alone. And whether you're a single or newly married or at the point in your life where you're raising young kids, definitely when you've got teenagers, you need the help and support and the uh, companionship of other people that you can lean on and share with, that you're not going through life alone. My mom and dad are missionaries. And uh, I grew up in a small environment real closely knit people. And I guess that's what I would like to bring to my home group. And wherever I'm involved here at Northam is a closer knit uh, group and groups. Um, because discipleship occurs when you get people close together. Um, you know, one more mature believer coming alongside another um, really um, it really happens when, when you when you simply get people together the fellowship of the small group you become family and uh, a lot of our meetings we've had a planned meeting and someone comes in with a particular need you minister to that need and forget your 
meeting. It's just uh, being there for one another. And I think uh, a lot of times you're closer to the small group than you are your own family because most of them are away some different areas and mm. your group's right there needing you. Mm. I think I look at church differently now. Instead of coming in and it's like, what can I get out of this? Or seeing a bunch of individuals in a, or seeing a big group in a church setting. Now, instead of seeing a big group of people at church, I see individuals and I notice the people that are there and wonder about what their needs are and if they're in a home group, if they have a relationship with with someone else, another Christian, that they can pray with that person and um, hold them accountable and that type of stuff. I look at individuals now. Community's become, you know, the biggest thing. It's become stop being just a word and become a reality. Just because uh, you can't just ha- you can't have a community if you don't meet together and uh, pray together regularly. And um, it's kind of like a building. You know, the cornerstone has to be um, your relationship with Christ and then your relationship with others. And uh, when you share that bond, you know, community becomes a whole different concept, uh, and it just really becomes real. Being in a group has allowed me to put a focus and worship that is outside of myself and realize that, that I'm, in, I'm, I'm in a group of believers who are worshiping together, and I'm not just coming alone or by myself, it's just, not just me and God, but it's a uh, whole community of believers worshiping God together. Well, specifically, if you want more information on home groups, uh, that information is available to you in the foyer. But let's go to the concept. Let's go deep into our understanding of what God is interested in building into our lives. You know, today we celebrate uh, Independence uh, Weekend, and, and Reggie kidded about this a little bit at the beginning, but... But I want to ask you, um, do you think we celebrate independence because uh, our uh, individual freedom was the ultimate goal of that independence? Or do you think we celebrate independence because at one time there was a hope that we could build a nation that was strong and good and together? Certainly, individual independence is important. But ultimately, the goal in the beginning of this country was a nation that would come together in its, in its servanthood uh, for, for God ultimately and, and its relationship with one another, different than any other nation in the world. And that was its goal. Let me liken that then to the independence that's established when you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You see, when you're born again, when you... Uh, are born from the flesh into the spirit, you become independent of those things that have been master over you, according to Romans 6. You are independent of the powers of the flesh. Now, you are independent of the powers of the adversary, even. But is that God's ultimate goal for you, that you have that independence? Or does God have something further in mind that those with whom he has established his independence would come and build that ultimate community, that city of God together that we know as the church. If you would turn in uh, in your scriptures, if you have them with you, to the second chapter of Acts, let's talk about why God builds the church and how it is a part of his consistent plan and how necessary the church is and how we have a misunderstanding of what church is because most of us have been brought up to think of the church in connection with a building, 
in connection with a particular uh, uh, fellowship or, or, or a particular place where we worship as individuals, a place that just brings us as, as, as selves into a fuller amount of self-assurance. But read this. Read what happened when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the people. You know that we have said the last couple of weeks that the first thing that happened, it was just overflowed and people told each other the good news of forgiveness, of forgiveness in God. And so people wanted to be saved and so they were born again and there were a lot of new people who had a whole new life and a whole new nature. But is that where it stopped? Read with me. Starting with verse 41 in the second chapter of Acts. So then... Those who had received his word were baptized, and there were added. Now, let me just stop at this word. There were added, the Bible says. This word means that there must have been something to be added to. There was not added to Judaism that day. There were already Jews. There was not added to the temple that day. They were already in the temple. There was something new that was added to. The Greek word, uh, prostathemi, means something more than numerical growth. It means to be to become a part of a whole new atmosphere. In the Septuagint, or the Greek translation of the original Hebrew Old Testament, uh, this word is used when they talk about Abel being born, and Abel was added to that family. And it doesn't mean that the family just increased numerically. It means that this boy who was born was in a whole new environment in which to grow. Curiously enough, the word is again used in Genesis 25, 8, when it talks about the death of Abraham. And it says, and Abraham was added to his ancestors. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think that just means that there's one more dead person? And so therefore the sum of dead people is higher? No, because it wouldn't have mentioned his ancestors. No, what it means is that that there is a different realm now into which Abraham goes. And therefore, the addition is more than numerical. The, the addition has to do with environment, with a new world in which someone will live. And therefore, when the Bible says, and there was added that day, it doesn't just talk about, it's not just talking about numerical growth. It's talking about something new into which they were born. Read with me again. There were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now, for those of you who picked up uh, sermon outlines on the way in, uh, I've broken these down in, in four categories, th these four categories. I want to tell you I'm going to preach on those in the future, one at a time. The reason I give them to you today is so that you can have that if you would like to do a little biblical research. Uh, it would be good if you would uh, look up different scriptures that have to do with those particular topics so that when I preach on those in the future, God will already have prepared your heart and those messages will be a lot richer for you. Therefore, today, we're just going to stick in that, that upper category. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who believed were together and had all things in common. 
They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone who might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind, there's that Greek word homothumadon again, in, in one accord, being as concerned for the other person as you are for themselves, or for yourself. There was this unity there. They were continuing with one mind in the temple. And breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. Now again, I want you to see something. They are not just in the temple. They are in the temple as a new group within the temple. They are not just among the people. They are now differentiated from the people. Oh, the people looked upon them with favor, but they knew there was a new community forming here. There was something new. It didn't have a, a specific organization yet, but there was a new group of people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. It is very important for us to understand how God works. Now, now I'm going to take you through right now a theological understanding and, and, and in the coming weeks, a theological understanding of what the church is. And I, I do this because I want to make us all theologians. I don't think there's any excuse for Christians to be ignorant about why they believe what they believe. And I don't think there's any excuse for any of us not to understand God's patterns. You know, community is a heart thing. As marriage is a heart thing. As friendship is a heart thing. But if all you have is heart it can be destroyed very easily because emotions come and go. No, we must have something more profound and deeper than that. We must have an understanding of why God has arranged things as they have. And so I'm going to speak to your head today. And if God wants to do something with your heart, that's up to Him. But I want us all to have an understanding because where we're going in the future is a very, very significant step. What I'm going to be preaching about this fall is if the Lord tarries, if Christ does not come back in the near future, and if we still have some years left on this planet, I believe God is going to do something significantly different with His church. What I would like to do this fall, I kept praying about this, I went away on a retreat, and I kept calling back, I said, Becky, you won't believe what God wants me to do. And I told her, and she said, keep praying. <laughs> but He wouldn't get off of it. This fall, I'm going to preach through with you the book of Revelation. Because, yeah, well, I tell you what, there's no way you can talk about the future without talking about the book of Revelation. And I've stayed away from it because there's so much imagery and because, because uh, uh, you know, it, it has not been a main text of preaching for, um, it's been a main, a main source of reference, but not a main text of preaching because we were doing other things. But if we're going to talk about the future of the church, specifically about the future of this church, we need, to, we need to go through the book of Revelation together. So come fall, I'm going to have you reading, in preparation for the messages, several chapters of Revelation. And then I'm going to preach them through, and we will see the principles that God is establishing in His church today that are of the future. But in order to do that, you have to have, all of us have to have a basic understanding of what the church is and how the church is built and why the church ever came to be. And so that's what I'll do in the next few minutes to prepare you for that conversation that's going to go on in the next couple of months. First of all, you must see the pattern of God. 
God does not just create new life forms without the environment in which they can thrive. If you will go back to the first chapter of Genesis, you will see that in the creation of the physical universe, that God always took great care to create the environment before he put the life form into the environment. The environment was a nurturer of that life form. It was a protector of that life form. You will see, if you go down to the first chapter of Genesis, that God uh, separated the light from the darkness and put in the, the, the sun and the moon. And, and he, he separated the, the heavens from the underneath. And later on, he came back and he put the birds and everything that flies in the heaven as its natural habitat. And then he separated the land and the seas. And, and, and later on, he came back and put into the seas those teeming, uh, fishes and, and great sea monsters. I love that phrase. I love, I, I just, that's a little boy in me that just gets carried away when I read about great sea monsters. I, I love to picture that. But the great sea monsters. And then he, and on the land he put the cattle and every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. Do you see a pattern there? That God put the life form appropriate to the environment that he had built. That that which can be sustained by the sea was put into the sea, and that which can be sustained by the land was put into the land, and, and that which can fly in the air was put into the air. So God carries every, cares, cares every bit as much about the environment as He does about the life form that is there to sustain that environment. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think that He would create an entirely new life form? That is the life form that comes when you are born again. That which is born of the flesh is the flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do you think for one minute that he would create an entirely new life form without creating an entirely new environment that is not consistent with the way God works? God knew from the beginning that there must be an environment to nurture and protect this life form, this new Christian, Christian this baby Christian, this Christian that needs some sort of incubator, some sort of special nutrient. And so, at the same time, he was creating a new life form, i.e. a Christian. He was also creating a new environment, i.e. the church. And it's very important that we understand that the church is not an afterthought. The theologian that I read... Uh, uh, take issue with the more liberal theologians that say, well, you know what happened? The church got developed like this. You know, there were people who believed in Jesus Christ, and at first they were part of the Jewish community, and, and then they kind of started talking more and more together, and they, you know how people just kind of congregate when they believe the same things, and so there was a, there was a kind of a social instinct that was followed. There was a need for mutual companionship. There was a, there was a political aim that was followed, and therefore the church just kind of came out on its own accord. That's what we ended up with. But the more accurate theologians, the ones who understand Scripture, say no. No. God created, even on that day, a new community. People weren't aware of the extent of that community. But it was created. There was a new environment into which people were added. It was just as intentionally born of God as those individuals who had been born again. The fellow theologian of Ritterboss, of whom I've just been quoting, is a man named Kattenberg. He says, probably 
when Jesus said, and I will build my church, the Aramaic word he used, Aramaic was Jesus' native tongue, the Aramaic word he used was uh, kanishta, as, as opposed uh, or, or as differentiated from kahel or kahela. Kahela means all the community, just a part of one big community of the faith. But kanishta has an implication in it that says there is a part or a segment of that community. There is a community within a community that has been created for a specific purpose, for a specific people. And he says when Jesus pictured the church, that was that's what he was picturing, the kanishta. Those peculiar, peculiar... Communion juice, does it to you every time. Peculiarly formed people into a peculiar environment or organization, the Kanishta. Now, why are we to understand that that is going on? What are we to do because there is this Kanishta? How are we to follow up? Well, there are a few ways. First of all, this is all I'm going to talk about this Sunday. I want us to understand how important the church is. And that the church has provided for us, this community, is provided for us by God for our protection and for His mysterious development of our lives. First of all, let's talk about protection. You know when you go out of here, you go into an alien world. The values are not the same as ours. The life is not the same as ours. And the more you grow in Christ, the more different it, it is. You understand when you go out of here, you have an accuser who night and day accuses you before the Father. You have an adversary. And therefore, God not only has angels that minister to us and protect us and nurture us, but God also has each other for us to stand with each other. We are to be each other's protection so that we are not alone in that hostile and alien world. You know, it is always a great curiosity to me when I hear people tearing down the church. Because what they're really doing is tearing down their own protection. They're taking away their support system. I heard a a parable one time. It's connected in my mind to Soren Kierkegaard, but I'm not sure if that's where it came from. But but it was an interesting parable. Listen to this. He said, once there was an old man who bought a cabin out in the woods. He bought it during the autumn time, just at the outbreak of winter. And it was an old wooden cabin, cabin with, a, with a pot-bellied stove in the middle. And the first week that, that the old man was in the cabin, winter hit with a fury. I mean, it was an especially bitter, cold time. And so the old man knew he needed a fire. And instead of going out into the woods and picking up dead woods out in the woods, he, he went around behind the house so it wouldn't take so long to walk and, and just ripped off a couple of boards and built a fire with that. Well, now there was a small problem. He, he did have this warm fire, but there was this draft in the house where he had ripped off those boards. And, and his back was cold. And so he needed a bigger fire, so he went around to the house again and ripped off a few more boards. And 
built the fire bigger and the fire was bigger and hotter and the front of him was warmer, but there's this huge wind now coming into the house. And again, he went out and ripped off some more boards and again he built a bigger fire and again it got colder and colder. And you have been on camping trips, have you not? You've been in front of a fire where the, the, the front of you was just absolutely burning up. Your face was practically melting and there was ice on your back. You know how that is. There's only so many times you can turn around. That was the man's situation. And the parable ends like this. He walked away, cursing the house, cursing the fire, cursing the winter. How many people have I seen come in and in order to build themselves up spiritually, started cutting everybody else down? not realizing they were taking away their own protection. And and it seemed like the more they cut everybody else down, the colder the church got. And so to make themselves feel better, they'd compare themselves to everybody else. And, and part of them got warmer, but the rest of them got colder. And how many times have they walked away cursing the fire, cursing the house, cursing the winter? I tell you, my friends... God has given us to each other to protect one another. To build one another up. And if we're cold, it does no good to tear the house down. It only worsens the situation. God's given us the church for protection from the way things operate out there. He's also given us the church to work a great mystery. And and frankly, I don't understand this, and, and I can hardly explain it to you, but I do know that somehow... When we come together, a great mystery happens, even when we don't understand it. You know, Ephesians is a a great book about the church. I love to read the imagery in Ephesians. In in Ephesians 2, it talks about the strangers and aliens on the earth, and you who are far off have been brought near. The dividing wall has been broken down, so we are now fellow citizens of the household of God, and so on and so forth. Wonderful picture. On, on In Ephesians 5, it has even a more intimate picture of God in Jesus Christ loving the church as a husband loves his wife only better. As a matter of fact, husbands are supposed to pattern themselves after the way Christ so intimately loves his church. But you know what? That all starts out in chapter 1. And in chapter 1, in some of the first verses, it talks about a mystery. In verse 9 it says, And he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. Now you read further and you keep looking, okay, what's the mystery? And it never really explains the mystery. Except you come down to the last verses in that first chapter and there's just an allusion to where you will find the development of the mystery. It says this, And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him, talking about Jesus, the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So where is the center of the developing ministry and mystery of the universe to be found? Somehow in the church. Now, I can't tell you how that happens, but I can tell you that it happens. I can, I can remember the mysteries 
that I've seen in the church, even when I didn't understand them, even though I wasn't thrilled with the services or, or the church was inadequate in many ways, still there was being something being built in my life that I didn't understand. Last night I uh, came to a vacation Bible school thing. We've got a couple of sessions of this, a couple of weeks of vacation Bible school because we can't fit all the kids in to our facility. So we divide them up and and, and they had one of the Vacation Bible School programs last night, the first week uh, 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 pageant last night. And there, were, there must have been 200 kids up here, um, fifth grade and under, who were just singing songs. I, I love to watch these little kids. I love to watch them. And they were, it was a farming theme, you know, and they were talking about planting the seed, and, you know, and, 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 and do, they were squared, you know, doing little... You know, square, it's so funny because when they're that young, they don't want to get with girls, so they're boys with boys and girls with girls. You know, it's, it was cute. And I, I remember standing there thinking, you know, this is so wonderful, not only because they are participating in a church program, but because God's building something in their life right now that they don't even understand. They're not even conscious of. And I began to remember when I was a boy in my home church, about how God, much beyond my own understanding, kept raising curiosity in me about Himself. Now, I want to tell you, and maybe some of you have had the same home church uh, experience, that I grew up in a very sober, very uh, serious, mainline church. And, and it very seldom got, uh, got emotional. Uh, as a matter of fact, never. I, I, I imagine if you'd have said amen, if somebody had shouted out amen in that church, everybody would have got up and left because the only time you ever said amen is when somebody was through, you know. But it was very, very sobering experience. And, and the gospel was not taught very often. But even in that atmosphere, even in that tremendous boredom for a young boy, God was working the mystery of His will in my life. I, re- I remember looking over the crowd, and, and it was a fairly big church. It was a, a couple hundred or maybe 250, and, and, and for back then, that's a big church. I can remember looking over the crowd and Dr. Shoemaker preaching from this very high pulpit. And, 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 and Dr. Shoemaker was a very educated man, and he, and he hardly ever used a word less than ten syllables long. And I, and I strained to try to understand what he was saying, and I, and I couldn't. And, I, and I'd look around, and everybody else was paying attention, but I knew they couldn't understand him very well either. And I kept thinking to myself, there's a great source of mystery and awe and reverence to me. Why they were there? I thought as a little boy, you know, the most boring program on TV is better than this. What are these people doing here? And why do they keep coming back Sunday after Sunday? I couldn't figure it out. I remember sitting always, we had our pew, you know. You always got your pew. And if sometimes some visitor sits in your pew, you just can't worship right. Because you don't know whether or not God will count you present. Because he may not locate you if you're in another part of the church, because that's your seat, you know. You're out of your seat, you don't know where they get counted. But anyhow, our, our pew, my grandmother and my sister and I, third pew from the back on the left. And I remember sitting near the edge of that pew because every Sunday when Dr. Shoemaker would get done with his sermon, he'd, he'd kind of storm down during the closing hymn to, to do the benediction from the back. And I remember him, robes flying, you know. 
And I think, oh, here he comes. And, and I remember him passing by and this great sense, again, of awe and reverence falling on me as, a, as the man passed by. Now, it wasn't him as a man. I knew better than that. I knew men were men and that was that. But there was something about this person that had spent the week talking to God, you know, probably in Latin. They probably talked in Latin. God probably talked back in Latin too. But, but as high and as, as non-understandable as it was, there was a presence on this man. Never understood. But this, this is kind of this anointing just kind of fell on me. You know, I said, there was something about it. I didn't know what it was. Didn't know what it was. But yet it was a palpable presence Anybody could have walked into that church and said, this church is deader than a doornail. And most people would have from a real live church. But yet God had not abandoned that church. God was working in that church. He was working in the life and the mind of a little boy who didn't have a mind, who didn't have much of a life. But yet God was working the mystery of his will. And I still to this day can't understand exactly what happened. I remember... People talking together that shouldn't have been talking together. I, I still can't figure out why they did. Because they were so different. And in our town, I grew up in a small town, they, they would not be people who would ever have occasion to speak to one another. I remember a lady who sat directly from, in front of us, fourth pew from the back on the left. Her, I, I don't remember her name, but I always called her Mrs. Purple. Because she wore an outfit that was purple every Sunday. It's the only outfit she had. I, mean, I, I think she probably scraped and saved, you know, all her money and got a church outfit. You know, it's the only one she had. And every Sunday, Miss Purple would come in and sit there. And now Mrs. Purple was one of the most nervous little creatures you've ever seen in your life. I, I think she had a small inferiority complex because she, she, she couldn't have had a big anything, you know. So even her inferiority complex must have been small because she didn't do anything in a big way. And, and, and when you got in a conversation with Mrs. Purple, she just you could tell she was in misery, not wanting to say the wrong thing. Just so unsure of herself. On the other end of the socioeconomic social scale was Mrs. Fish. Now, I say that because that was her name, not because she looked like a fish. It was her name. And Mrs. Fish was one of the classiest, most articulate, most erudite women you've ever seen in your life. I mean, she was a 90s woman back in the 1890s. And she was, I mean to tell you, sophisticated, rich. This woman wore a different dress and outfit to church every Sunday. I could tell that because when I couldn't see the outfits, I could always see the hats. She had a hat on, different hat on every Sunday. Sometimes she had big fruit on her hat. Big fruit. Bananas and grapes, and I enjoyed those hats. And when she didn't, when she didn't have fruit, she had feathers. Remember the big feathers, you know, big feathers. When she didn't have feathers, she had big lace, big lace on her hats. But I tell you what, this was a first-class woman. And I remember every Sunday, she didn't hang around with her rich friends. She'd come over to Mrs. Purple. And just speak a word. And you could tell Miss Purple just wanted to find a hole somewhere and crawl in it. Or just wish she could just be under a pew anywhere. Because what was Mrs. Fish talking to her for? 
But there was kindness in this woman's voice. I mean, my grandmother was still talking with other people. Oh, you'd stay around and talk a long time. And I, so I'd there be there, third pew from the back on the left, listening to this conversation. And Miss Fish always, always had this wonderful attitude, this heart for Mrs. Purple. And I can, I can remember thinking as a boy, why? Why does she care about Mrs. Purple? Why would anybody care about somebody so afraid and so unassuming? There was a great mystery. Great mystery in that church. You know, when God put his hand on that little ornery boy and called him into ministry, everybody that knew me was totally shocked. Totally shocked. Not more shocked than I was, but totally shocked. Except for several of the praying Christians in that congregation. I can remember going to my pastor saying, you're never going to believe this. God's calling me into the ministry. And he never hesitated. He looked at me and said, well, it's about time you heard that. He said, I spotted that years ago. Never hesitated. But I remember preaching my first sermon. Boy, you want to, you talk about nerve-wracking. Preach a, preach a sermon to the people that have watched you grow up. Oh, goodness. I was sweating bullets. Talk about a prophet without honor in his own territory. Absolutely. I still can't believe to this day I did it. But I do remember several things. And one of the things I remember is them wheeling in my second grade teacher. Now by this time, this woman had been so crippled up by rheumatoid arthritis that she couldn't move. She was in great pain. Great pain. But they wheeled her in and put her at the back of that sanctuary. And I had to preach that whole sermon looking at my second grade teacher. Remembering every bad thing I'd ever done in second grade. And, and I was hell on wheels going through. Going through. I spent more time in the principal's office. Let me tell you, young men in here, if you are ornery, you better watch it because you're going to end up in ministry. It's God's, it's God's payback. I'm telling you, the ornery you are, it's God's payback. I'm just warning you right now, you better straighten up your act. I'm telling you. And I remember preaching this. And this second grade teacher, big tears. And I went back. See, she wasn't part of our church. She was part of another church. I didn't know that. And I went back and I said, thank you for coming. She said, oh, Joey, I've prayed so long for you. What was that about? (laughs) See, I didn't understand. All those years of boredom, all those years of not being able to figure out what God was doing, but God was working all the time. We need to understand that God works His miracles even when we don't have it all together. Even when it doesn't look like there's anything moving. God's doing His stuff. And so... We need to come together and form together into community. We need to be close because that's how God intended it to be. Do you know there's not one place in the Lord's Prayer where the, where the pronouns I, me, or mine are used? It's all us and we and our. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us of our sins.
You know why? Because that's what God wants to build us into. A people that are a people, not a bunch of individuals. Let me tell you one more story and then I'll quit. I read a good book this week by uh, Larry Crabb and his dad called The God of My Father. The, the father and son wrote it together. And, and Larry Crabb Sr., Lawrence Crabb, wrote about his growing up. When his father had died when he was five years old and, and his mother was left with four kids to raise during the Depression. And Lawrence said, you know, I remember one time my mom calling me in and she said, now, Laura, I want you to go down and get bread for us. We haven't got anything to eat. And he said, so I held my hand out, and Mom put in my hand a nickel, which is what a loaf of bread cost. And then one by one, she curled my fingers around that nickel, and she kept looking into my face and saying, in very slow, marked terms, Lawrence, this is our last nickel. Don't lose it. He said, as I went out the door and my mother's voice kept going through my mind, what I remember is this, that her emphasis was not upon last. Her emphasis was on our. That needs to be the mentality of the church doesn't matter what resources we have or don't have or whether we're on our last resource. Because what makes a family is that sense of our. He said, I didn't care whether we ever had any money for as long as we lived, as long as my mom was using that word, our. That was everything. And that's God's heart. Pray with me. God, as you are forming a community based solely on identification with your Son, Jesus Christ, based solely upon His sacrifice, as we approach this table of communion that is the most graphic sermon we could ever face, as we come together knowing that our unity is only because of what Jesus Christ has sacrificed for us, not not out of any mutual philosophy or any... Uh, worldly friendship, but only because Jesus has called us together. God, help us to partake of this sacrament in a worthy manner. We pray in Jesus' name.